Are you curious about the Mike Zunino plan for drafts? We'll talk about that and more with Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 24th. It's show number three of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season and our first regular show of the year. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, about his labor mixed draft and the Zunino plan, about the Baseball HQ site for 2017, and a couple of sleepers. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on San Diego prospects Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about identifying good pitchers using total batter-faced metrics. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's time to get going. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's good to be back to baseball. Uh, before we get started, what have you been looking at in this early preseason to start getting ready for your own drafts and auctions? Oh, I've been just trying, just trying to comb through projections and all of that sort of thing, and see what uh, we've. The leagues I'm in have uh, our, our, our keeper leagues have had to do cut downs and a lot of time trying to make difficult decisions on on who to cut and who to keep and that sort of thing. So let's start with the last big free agent signing in the National League. Catcher Matt Weeders, formerly of the Orioles, signs just up the road with the Washington Nationals. A BaseballHQ.com analyst Phil Hertz says 2016 might look disappointing, but if we take a closer look, most of the arrows are pointing up. What did Phil mean by that? Well, they are indeed. You know, Matt Weeders, it took up Matt Weeders, the, the market that Matt Weeders hoped would develop for his for his uh, free agent year simply didn't happen. Uh, and it took a long time for him to get signed. Uh, and so, and, th- and that I'm sure was a disappointment from his point of view. But uh, Matt Wieters, I, you know, I was reading a blog the other day that w- was written out of Baltimore about uh, the, the discussion was, why is it taking Matt Wieters so long to get a contract? And basically the folks in Baltimore were saying, this guy hadn't done anything for several years and he, and he just looked awful. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, that's that's true. I mean, Weeders has been hurt over the last couple of seasons. He's dealt with injuries, but uh, a lot of things pointing up that last year Weeders was, as Phil Hertz pointed out, was undone by a 23% hit rate after the first of July. So his his power index, his expected power index, was up. Um, so you know, his contact rate was back up to 80%. Uh, his uh, his expected batting average was 20 points higher than his real average. So as Phil Hurt said, everything seems to be looking up for Matt Wieters, and he could really surprise and, and have a nice bounce-back season, I would think, in Washington. The problem, of course, is going to be that ballpark is much more difficult difficult for a hitter than the ballpark in Baltimore. 
You know, I, I don't know that uh, I'm not in a National League league this year or a mix, so it's I'm, I'm just kind of um, thinking off the top of my head because I haven't given Matt Weeders a lot of thought. And when I look at his record, I, I look at it and I think even at his best, he wasn't that great. You know, his peak year was in 2011. He managed 500 at-bats, so he had a pretty full season. But it was still only a $14 season, a 260 batting average. You know, he had uh, just over 20 home runs, but only 70 RBIs and 70 runs and, and of course, no stolen bases. I mean, among catchers, I get it. He's he's kind of an, an option, I suppose. But Matt Weeders, over his career, has been something of a general disappointment to me. And, uh, and I wonder if that's just going to continue, even though he signs with this new club. And then add in the injury risk... I don't know. I think I might nominate Matt Wieters and then stay well away. I, you know, I think you may be right. I think that the the this is a player whose perception uh, and potential um, has always been a bit better than the reality. the The injury risk is very high on Matt Wieters. Uh, it simply has not gotten over 2014, 2015. Did not get to 300 at bats. So, so that's a red flag, um, and certainly has not matched the potential that we hoped he would have when he first came up. So. I agree with you, Patrick. I think there's um, there's potential for some some downside here. Um, on, on the flip side of that, there there are not a lot of really strong catchers out there. So if you get beyond the first tier of the Buster Posies and players like that, then Matt Wieters falls into kind of a middle tier uh, of yeah, he might do okay, but uh, I sure wouldn't pay a lot for him to find out. Yeah, we're projecting Matt Weeders at BaseballHQ.com to have 17 home runs, which is certainly helpful, but a modest $8 season in all, around 50 runs scored and 50 RBIs. Uh, and, uh, that low batting average were a little bit higher than last year, but still not great. I, I don't know. I agree with you, of course. Catcher's very thin in both leagues. National League's no exception. And maybe you have to... I mean, maybe Weeders is going to be the best of a bad lot in that sort of second tier, as you mentioned. Uh, but he's not going to be on my target list if I'm a National League drafter, that's for sure. Uh, also, something of a lesser signing down in Milwaukee. First baseman Adam Lynn signs on. Of course, Chris Carter mosey down the road to the Yankees. Nick, I usually think of Adam Lind as a platoon-type guy and a weak enough defensive player that he's going to be maybe restricted to mostly DH duty. What is Lind's role going to be with the Milwaukee Brewers? Well, right now they're saying that his role will be as a backup to Ryan Zimmerman, but you know, Zimmerman has a, has a really bad injury history, uh, and he could wind up in the strong side of a platoon uh, in that case, or if something happens to Zimmerman, as it frequently does, he could wind up uh, with, with almost full-time at-bats, and, and that's not good for Adam Lind. Uh, Adam Land has reached a point in his career when he simply cannot hit left-handed pitching. Uh, and so he, he's very good against right-handers. But the thing to look at with Adam Lind is if you go back to 2009, here are the home run totals since 2009. 35, 23, 26, then 11 in 2012, then 23, 6 in 2014, 20 and 15, 20 and 16. So this is a guy who's got a pretty good track record behind him uh, and, and has a, a decent batting average against right-handed pitching. So I think this is kind of an under-the-radar, on-your-bench, second catcher, third catcher, or a third first baseman sort of thing. Uh, A guy who could have some value and sneaky kind of value uh, if the playing time develops. Yeah, I think the big question is going to be playing time. And as you mentioned, uh, 
certainly Adam Lynn's best days are behind him. It's been a while since he was a $20 player. That was uh, 2013, $7 only last year. Despite 400 at-bats, $7 is not really getting the job done. So, uh, again, Adam Lynn might be a curious type of play, but a cautious type of play is how I'd, uh, how I'd sum it up. We're projecting Lind to just earn $6 in 5x5 five five leagues because of his playing part-time. And Milwaukee also made some news. There's another first baseman in the mix. Eric Thames, remember that name, comes back to the majors after a couple of seasons overseas in the Korean Baseball Association, where he was uh, something of a Babe Ruth. Yeah, he was indeed. If you look at those stats in, in Korea, they are phenomenal. Uh, over his uh, his uh, seasons in Korea, three seasons in Korea, 348 batting average, 1171 OPS. And that's not, that's the right number. 1171 OPS. Uh, average 41 home runs a year, 126 RBIs, 21 stolen bases, 114 runs scored. He tore it up in, in, the, in Korea. And so, you know, those are, those are phenomenal numbers. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, we've got uh, some other Korean players who've come over recently and not done so well once they transferred back to the States. So that's the downside. Uh, I mean, he could just fall off the table completely. The thing that might make you give you some pause with Eric Thames in terms of uh, this guy's going to flop is he had two seasons in the majors before he went to Korea. So he knows something about major league pitching. He's faced those kind of pitchers before. Uh, and I think for me, the real question is, did he learn to make better contact in Korea than he was making in the States? Did he learn to take a walk? Um, are the pitchers over there simply that much worse at finding the plate? Uh, his batting eye in Korea is was 0.78 compared to a 0.26, 0.17 during his two uh, two years uh, in, in the majors. So if his batting eye, if he can get his batting eye up, anywhere in the neighborhood it was in Korea, this guy could do something. Yeah, but something you said really jumped out at me, Nick, which was we know that he has some major league background, and when I look at it, I see a major league background of a guy who couldn't hit. And uh, and as you said, uh, the 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 Korean league is uh, we know this is not uh, nearly as good as the uh, major leagues, or, or probably even as uh, the Japanese leagues. And I think maybe the problem might be in in making an assessment between Korea and and the big leagues is not that the, the Korean players can't find the plate. It's that they find it too often. And uh, for a guy like Eric Thames, who's always been challenged to identify a ball from a strike, it must be very reassuring to know that every pitcher is going to throw a lot of strikes and there's not going to be a lot on them. Yeah, that may be, that certainly may be the case. And, you know, with, with Eric Thames, it's, uh, the guy's 30 years old, and so uh, his, his best peak years may be just, uh, just fading behind him. And so... Uh, I would I would throw a cautionary note out there on Eric Thames. He's certainly not going for much in drafts, and and that may make him an attractive uh, an attractive uh, target. Uh, I think our HQ projections are a little bit bullish on Eric Thames. Twenty three home runs, eighty six RBIs, two seventy four batting average. Uh, I think for me, if he reached that kind of a ceiling, he would certainly be a fairly valuable player. But I think the chances of getting there are, are maybe less than fifty percent. Yeah, that's about a $20 projection, I think. And, you know, it's the kind of bet that if I had to make it you know, for, for 18 bucks, I'm not taking it. If I can make the bet for seven bucks, I'll take it. And if I have to do it in the fourth round, no. And if I can do it in the 17th round, yes. So it's it's 
pretty much a question of how much does it cost you to take the to throw those dice, I guess. Uh, earlier in this offseason, another signing at first base, this one with a bit of a twist. Colorado signed former shortstop center fielder Ian Desmond, who played pretty well last year for the Texas Rangers. Colorado says Desmond's going to play first base uh, in Coors Field, and they gave him $70 million bucks, uh, Nick, so I'm guessing he's going to have a long leash. But they have a lot of first-base candidates in camp, so how much will being in Colorado help Desmond, and how quickly does he need to get off to, to a good start? He's got a really long leash. This is the highest free agent contract for a position player in Colorado history. So they're going to give him a long leash to adapt to the National League and uh, with that kind of a, a record behind him. And, you know, the thing the thing to look at with Ian Desmond was, in a, in a way, he really had uh, a career year last year. Some great numbers uh, for, uh, last season. 22 home runs, 86 RBIs, 21 stolen bases, 285 batting average. That's kind of, uh, you know, that that's a really good line. And he's done that before, but you've got to look back to 2015 when he had a $14 season and uh, had it hit 233. So I think if you look at him historically, that 233 batting average in 2015 was a bit of an aberration. Uh, he has generally done better than that. Uh, I think it's a good signing, and I think Colorado is a good landing place for Ian Desmond. Uh, so th- this is something where I would say, yeah, I'd, I'd roll some dice here. Uh, not maybe among the top tier of National League first baseman, but uh, certainly someone worth grabbing. And if he has outfield eligibility, as he probably does, that certainly makes it more attractive. It does, and, and something you said, again, jumped out at me uh, pretty quickly, and that was this idea that Ian Desmond has done this before at a, at a really high, useful level. Uh, you mentioned those other years. That there's actually a, a number of them in his past history. Uh, 2013, you mentioned that was a $29 season. Last year was a $29 season. 2012 was a $26 season. 2014 was a $27 season. And he always seems to be able to figure out a way to get 20-ish bags, 20-ish home runs. And if it weren't for the batting average in 2015, he probably would have been up around 20 bucks a game. And that starts, as you said, it starts to look like the outlier because most of the time he's like 260 to 290 in that range, and that's a pretty normal range considering normal variance. Uh, we're projecting Ian Desmond for a, a pretty good season in Colorado, 24 bucks this year, and I think there's upside there. I think there is too. I think there's definitely upside. Uh, our projection right now is 18 home runs, and I think in Colorado we can easily exceed that. He's hit 20 home runs in, in uh, what, four or five of the past six seasons, so uh, and 19 in the other one. So I think that 18 may be a low projection, especially playing in Colorado. And finally, Nick, staying in Colorado, the Rockies always seem to have trouble nailing down the back end of their bullpen. They put guys in there, and it's of course it's tough to pitch in Colorado. We all know that, but they get injuries. They get uh, poor performance. They trade guys. I mean, they, they really have trouble. So this year they've addressed the issue. They've signed free agent former Kansas City closer Greg Holland, who was uh, on the shelf all of last year after surgery. Holland lost the closer job in Kansas City because of that injury. So what is his status coming back from surgery as a potential closer in Colorado? Well, I think, you know, this is one I think you take with, with a lot of caution at this point. I mean, Greg Holland certainly is a, is a great former closer, but he's coming back from Tommy John surgery. And so you've got to be very careful. He'll be, uh, he's 16 months removed from TJ surgery at this point. Uh, should begin to see some kind of a comeback, but not likely to be, the um, the closer, I think, coming out of camp, unless he shows a whole lot uh, in uh, in spring training. So uh, with a strong spring training, he might be Colorado's closer from the beginning. Uh, certainly a situation to watch, but the 
You've got to remember, they also have Adam Odovino over there, who certainly has the skills. If we look at, we talk about skills, and if we look at skills, Adam Odovino has the skills to close. And uh, he could start out with a job simply because Greg Holland is behind, coming back from the TJ surgery. And if he does well, he could certainly hang on to it. So I would not spend a lot of money on Greg Holland at this point. Unless you want to maybe buy all of them, Ottavino and Holland and Jake McGee, maybe even Carlos Estevez had 11 saves last year in 18 chances. The thing about these Colorado guys you mentioned, Ottavino, Estevez, they had a lot of blown saves as well as as well as a fair number of saves. Uh, Ottavino was 7 for 12. Estevez was 11 for 18. That's not outstanding performance for a closer, and it'll make a, make a manager's hair turn gray. So I think when Colorado's looking at this situation, Bud Black is the manager there, and uh, he's going to have some decisions to make, and I wonder maybe he just goes by committee. they got a left-hander in McGee, right-handers otherwise, and so they may be able to mix and match. They may, they may indeed be able to do that, and so that could, be a, that could be the situation in Colorado, which means that no one's going to get a whole lot of saves. Uh, if you if you look at it from from uh, that point of view, so Alvarado uh, actually is a right-hander. Um, so, but but with McGee, as you said, the left-hander, that there can be a lot of mix and matching going on. So, um, the thing to look at with with all of these guys, we've got some guys here with some pretty good skills, and if one of them catches on fire and figures out how to do it, uh, there's several guys who could run with the actually run with the ball. Alvarado's uh, BPV last year was 187. Uh, that's that's uh, certainly closer worthy. And uh, it's certainly possible that he would able, be able to take off of the role, as could McGee, uh, Estevez, perhaps a less likely alternative, but possible there too. So a lot of choices in Colorado. And team analyst Rob Carroll covered this story for BaseballHQ.com, did a great job there. BaseballHQ.com is forecasting a Holland to get 21 saves, but only average decimals, just about 50 strikeouts. Basically, we're saying an 8 to $10 value. You know, Nick, uh, when we're talking about this, I think beware the situation where nobody knows who the closer is. So for now, it's, uh, it's definitely a toss of the dice. Maybe things will get sharper focus when uh, spring training is coming to a conclusion. Maybe we'll know then that somebody actually has the job. But even at that, their, their leash is going to be short because there's so many other guys behind whoever wins the race. There's going to be somebody behind, right behind them. Right, very definitely. It's one of those things to be very careful of coming out of spring training. And uh, certainly we, we know from experience that a lot, of, uh, a lot of so-called closers leaving spring training are not the closer by the end of April. And even if they are, not by the end of May. Nick, uh, thanks a million for helping us out. I appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. It's good to be back. It is good to have you back, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our veteran National League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go to the American League, BaseballHQ.com, director of news and analysis, speculator columnist, keeper leagues columnist, team analyst, and head bookkeeper, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to a brand new season of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, PD, let's do this. Of course, uh, actually for you, it's not the first podcast. You did some terrific work along with our other team analysts on the excellent uh, team previews podcast the last couple of weeks. So let's get rolling on a regular program and the American League beat. This is the first week at BaseballHQ.com of Playing Time Tomorrow columns. They come out six days a week, one per division. So let's start in the American League Central. There's a lot of worry among David Robertson owners as to how long he might be saving games in, in Chicago where they seem to be rebuilding. Mike Shears touched on this in his Playing Time Tomorrow uh, article. What's the news coming out of the Southside bullpen? Well, obviously the, the struggles the White Sox had in 2016 and the, the 
trades of Chris Sale and Adam Eaton in the offseason tells you that uh, they're in rebuild mode, or at least in reload mode. And, and we didn't go for many days this winter without hearing uh, a lot about the rumored deals for uh, Jose Quintana and Todd Fraser so, or Robertson. So they may not be done. And, and Robertson's an interesting guy in Chicago for several reasons. He's an established closer. He has a big contract that runs two more years. He'd been fairly dominant until last season when he really struggled with his control at times, um, as well as home runs in the second half. Fantasy-wise, it's easy to see why the White Sox uh, likely have him on the market. They have plenty of big arms that could replace him, uh, certainly by the time they're ready to contend again. Um, And this is where the near-term angst among fantasy owners, I think, comes into play. So let's talk about some of the replacement possibilities, Jock. The name everyone seems to be thinking about is Nate Jones. How much is there to that? Yeah, I mean, Nate Jones is the obvious choice here. Uh, he, he, he enjoyed his best year in 2016. He throws mid-90s gas, good control, lots of swing and miss. But, but it, he's interesting, too, because he has a cheap contract uh, through 2018 with, with very inexpensive club options for three years after that, as Mike Shears noted. And he's more dominant than Robertson right now. So um, given his past injury issues, it almost seems like the White Sox might make him available as well, uh, particularly to contending teams. So uh, even if Robertson departed, Jones' ascension to the closer role may not be certain or even that long term if it happens. Okay, so let's uh, let's take this to the logical extension. So Robertson gets traded, Jones comes in, does well, he gets traded. Uh, who's next on the uh, on the on the greasy ladder? Well, Mike Tabbs, Zach Birdie is an obvious candidate. He's a college reliever. He throws 100 miles an hour. Uh, he's got a lot of swing and miss too. He had some control uh, problems early in his minor league career. He ought to be in Chicago this year. Um, obviously, the White Sox, if they're not contending, can afford to work him into the role. Um, but but the thing that really makes this uh, 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 interesting for the White Sox is that they've, they've acquired through trade and, and draft a whole bunch of uh, good live arms like uh, Ronaldo Lopez or, or Carson Fulmer, who they're trying in the rotation now, but some people aren't quite sure whether they're going to be in the rotation long term. Uh, um, these guys all throw up in the, in the mid-high 90s. Uh, Lopez can dial it up to 100 miles an hour as well. The point here is that the White Sox have plenty of options. I'm not sure they really care about our 2017 fantasy teams. They can figure this out as they go along. There's a lot of talent there, and there's a lot of uncertainty as well. Yeah, that's a, it's a difficult situation to, to manage for fantasy owners because you want to get in on those, on those saves, but it's really hard to say right now who it's going to be for the long term. I imagine both uh, David Robertson and uh, Nate Jones' price will drop in American League-only leagues because of the uncertainty if you play in a league where traded players are lost to you. Yeah, you would think so, um, because um, let's face it, uh, the way relief pitchers suddenly gained some cachet uh, with Andrew Miller's performance uh, last year in the postseason, uh, it's it's the type of thing, it's, it's, it's the type of economy that I think um, contenders are going to be pursuing, particularly given what appears to be um, a lot less starting pitching and starting pitching prospects uh, available this year. Of course, the Cleveland club had a terrific season and almost won the World Series, a heartbreaker in extra innings versus the Cubs, but they're also coming off a lot of big, unexpected performances that got them that far. One of the breakouts was from third baseman outfielder Jose Ramirez. He had a terrific year, and now the question is whether he can repeat that great performance. Dave Adler covered this in Facts and Flukes last week. What does he think about Jose Ramirez? Jose Ramirez is a nice player, particularly in, 
in fa for fantasy owners who prize versatility since uh, he qualifies at third base and outfield and he's also likely going to get some in-season qualification at the middle infield spots where he began his career. Um, but as, as Dave kind of points out in his effort, um, it's difficult to see how he improves or grows too much from 2016, even at age 24. He's not probably not going to hit 312 again. He had a 34% hit rate last year. And even though we have him up uh, to 13 home runs uh, uh, in our projections, current projections from 11 last year, I'm not sure I'd depend on this because a lot depends on his fly ball rate, which was higher than it had ever been last year in 2016. Um, He's got fine contact. He's going to make contact near 90% uh, decent speed, and he's certainly capable of um, of hitting 280 with the 25 stolen bases we have projected for him. I'm with Dave in that he could come close to 2016, but gun to my head, if, if I'm betting on it, uh, I'm projecting a little bit of regression from here. You know what? Jock, I think I'll take the over on the on the projection, and I'll disagree with you and with Dave. I think that uh, Jose Ramirez should be full value for almost all these stats, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him get up to 15 or 16 home runs and maintain everything else. So um, I'm going to be looking at Jose Ramirez really hard when I go to my draft uh, later on in March, and uh, I feel very confident about him. Uh, Danny Salazar in Cleveland also made some real big contributions in the first half anyway. He had 222 ARA through 15 starts. Then a 736 over the last 10 starts and finally to the DL with forearm tightness often a problem with an elbow shoulder fatigue often a problem with the shoulder this is not good news he didn't play in the playoffs at all Ryan Bloomfield covered Salazar in a facts and flukes column this past week what does Ryan see about uh, Danny Salazar yeah Ryan points out in his work that uh, Salazar's control has been pretty shaky for the past three years uh, his dominance has really overcome that but but the control really went south for all of 2016 even before the second half injuries um, more than anything in the second half because along with the walks he gave up almost two home runs per nine innings in the second half which is what led to that inflated ERA uh, velocity uh, swinging strikes uh, um, they were fine swinging strikes were down a tad after June but Salazar can still dominate when he's right, particularly with that good fastball changeup combination. Uh, unfortunately, as Ryan notes, uh, durability's always been an issue with Salazar. He's he's never gone more than 100. Well, he's only gone 100 more than 150 innings just once in his career. He's never hit the 200 mark, and now the walk look, walks look here to stay. So. Uh, an effective guy when he's healthy, he's going to get you lots of K's, um, a, a, a mid-rotation guy, but he's always going to be a risk and perhaps even more of one going forward. And again, Jock, don't you think this is the kind of situation where you have to see whether all of that risk, and it's substantial, I agree with you, but if all of that risk gets priced in at the table, maybe this guy's worth six bucks as a bid or seven bucks as a bid or a 16th round pick in a, in a draft. The, the question with guys like this, it always seems to me is, are you being asked to pay a premium given the risk involved? That's exactly right. I mean, you always have to look at the situation you're confronted with in your auction and in your draft and in your league. Who is valuing Salazar and where are they valuing him? He could be a bargain or he could be a, 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 a way out of your salary league. So uh, you're right, PD. It's all relative. All right, let's move over to your bailiwick, the American League West, as we continue our tour 
of the American League. There's been a whole bunch of outfield turnover in the division, especially uh, in Seattle, where new GM Jerry Depoto has been tearing things down and building them up more quickly and purposefully than the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, Ger- Gerard Dyson looks like he could get nearly full-time at-bats, and if we look at his stolen bases on a pro-rated basis through his career, he could easily swipe 40, maybe even 50 bags. And uh, rookie outfielder Mitch Hanniger looks like the favorite for right field. You covered this in your first American League West playing time tomorrow. Talk about the Seattle outfield in general and Dyson and Hanniger in particular. Yeah, Dyson's always been a really interesting uh, player, particularly a fantasy player. He's a guy who's averaged uh, more than 30 stolen bases a year for the past five years and getting less than 300 bats every season in Kansas City. And now in now in Seattle, he looks primed to get his first ever shot at 400 at bats as the left-handed hitting platoon against right-handers. And he looks to me like a decent uh, bet to steal 40 bases. Uh, um, so uh, with, with speed at a premium, um, he's a guy that a lot of people should be targeting. Hanneker's a, a little more of an unknown quantity, and, 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 a, and there are still some observers out there that, that don't think he's much more than a part-timer, uh, which as a right-handed hitter could be problematic. But he worked hard last year at retooling his swing. He had a fine season both in AA and AAA, showed some patience and pop in Arizona last year. He hit five homers and, uh, and uh, managed to work 12 walks and 109 at-bats. And a lot of the guys I've actually talked to who saw him play over some time, uh, like Jim Callis and Mike Farron uh, at first pitch uh, this past November, they're believers. And, and Hanniger's good fundamentally. He can run a little bit. He can play defense. Right now, we have pro- him projected at uh, a 245 batting average with 19 home runs and 406 at-bats. So he's kind of an interesting guy right now. Obviously, neither Dyson nor Hanniger has seen the elevated Major League playing time they look uh, about to get in Seattle. So who's going to be behind them if things don't pan out for either of them? Well, it's, it's interesting here, too, because there's really nobody obvious in the outfield, in the outfield backups that'll, that'll come in and replace these guys. You've got Ben Gamble, who's a left-handed hitting back bat. He profiles as a, a fourth outfielder, doesn't have a lot of major league experience, didn't fare particularly well in Seattle last year. He hit about a buck 25, I think. Um, Guillermo Heredia, a Cuban import, uh, did a little bit better in his 100 at-bats. Uh, he showed at least some plate skills, but he, he showed zero pop at all. He hit about 250 uh, with 80% plus contact and, and a 12% walk rate. Um, Tyler O'Neill is the most legit high minors uh, uh, or high minors outfield they have, but he's not going to be ready at least until after the All-Star break and maybe not even then. I think what happens in Seattle is if the offense is struggling, they may put uh, Danny Valencia again in left field. Uh, Valencia has been decent offensively the last couple of years. He can at least handle it, even though he's not the best defender. Uh, Seattle also has Nelson Cruz, who they hope can be almost a full-time DH this year, but uh, that may not work out for them. So um, who's backing up these guys is a real question mark right now. Geez, Jock, you know, I I think if Seattle has to play Nelson Cruz or Valencia in the outfield, they, they're they going to have more problems than uh, than we're expecting so far. DePoto looks like he's trying to build a defensively oriented, defensively good team. A uh, lot of fly balls in that big park, maybe get some fly ball pitchers to send fly balls out there to Dyson and uh, Leonis Martin in center and this Hanniger kid in right. And if you replace anybody out there with Valencia or especially Cruz, aren't you in real trouble defensively? 
Yeah, that's what makes this fascinating. Uh, and an interesting point you make: all of those players uh, that they're that all of the projected starters right now can handle center field. So yeah, if you, if you played Cruz or, or Valencia, obviously you'd put them in the corners. But you're you're spot on in that uh, Seattle has created an outfield that they want to to go get fly balls. Their starting pitching staff is a little shaky this year. Um, and if they have to put Cruz or uh, Danny Valencia out there, that kind of goes against their strategy, which is what part of which makes this uh, the, the projected Seattle outfield really interesting. Because um, if those guys don't hit, what do they do? It's a real conundrum because you know you got basically may uh, the Seattle may end up having to choose between glove and and bat, and either way they come up short on the other side of the equation. Uh, finally, over in the American League East last year, Pablo Sandoval came to camp looking like he swallowed a blimp. Then he played horribly. Then he missed essentially the whole 2016 season after shoulder surgery, which is what happens when you use a hay rake for a fork. And now Sandoval is back in camp, and a lot of sources are saying he's, and I'm quoting, in the best shape of his life. And haven't we heard that before? He has a really big contract with the Red Sox, so Boston looked like they might give him another try at third base and maybe try sticking with him. Chris Olson covers the division in playing time tomorrow. What does he think of Pablo Sandoval's comeback bid? Yeah, well, apparently, per all the reports, and Chris, uh, Sandoval's lost about 30 pounds, uh, Obviously, the talk, the Red Sox camp, and, and we all know this is an annual thing now with Sandoval. And the fact that Boston is on the hook for $53 million still says he's the guy at third base, at least against right-handed pitching, um, who he hits uh, as long as he can stay healthy. Um, Brock Holt uh, is, is, as always, capable of backing him up and will probably be his platoon partner. Uh, uh, he'll take over uh, full-time probably if Sandoval crumbles. Um, one interesting guy is is Rafael Devers, who will make his first effort in the high minors. He'll probably start the year at Double A. He has the skills to force himself into the picture after the All Star break, though he'd really have to take a leap, a big leap forward. He doesn't have any experience in the high minors. Um, but this is a guy who's a a top five hitting prospect overall, not just on the Red Sox. So um, this is a guy to watch. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens at third base for the Red Sox this year. Okay, so if we sum it up, what do you think about Sandoval's risk-reward balance when we go into draft? Yeah, it's it's really similar to um, to what we were talking about before about with Danny Salazar. Um, Sandoval's risky, um, but depending on your league, he could be undervalued. Uh, if you could get him for five, six dollars, uh, when he's healthy and right, he still hits right-handed pitching. Um, he, he's not likely to reach his previous peaks, uh, some of his better years in San Francisco's, but. I mean, if I needed third base help, I'd bid, bid five, six dollars on him and hope to get nine, uh, maybe even as high as fifteen dollars back. That's a pretty good Red Sox lineup, and that ballpark he's in is also very good. So, um, if indeed he can stay healthy, he can still produce. Well, the Baseball HQ projection looks a little pessimistic or cautious. We're projecting a 270 batting average, which would help most teams. 12 homers, 59 RBIs, 48 runs scored, and of course, zero on the stolen base side of things, which isn't bad. But, you know, if you look back in Sandoval's career, he's had some double-digit dollar value seasons. I mean, admittedly, they're quite a long ways away now, but there's a bit of upside here. And if you get him, like you said, five, six, seven bucks, it's almost all upside because he really can't do worse than five bucks again, especially if he's in any kind of better shape. Yeah, and he, and he hits right-handed pitching. I mean, he's always been able to hit right-handed pitching when he's on. The real key with Sandoval, obviously, is can he stay healthy enough to play, to, play, uh, to stay on the field and, uh, and get those 400 at-bats that, uh, that he's going to need? 
Okay, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Week one of the regular part of our BaseballHQ.com podcast season. We'll see you again next week. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson wears many hats at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. After the break, our feature interview. Stay right here for Baseball HQ co-general manager Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, minor league analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about the 2017 edition of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, our annual guide to the prospects and trends that will help you win your fantasy leagues. The Minor League Baseball Analyst has scouted more than a thousand prospects using Baseball HQ's exclusive player potential rating systems, sabermetric analysis, performance trends, and major league equivalencies from the past five seasons, and there's lots more as well. Order your Minor League Baseball Analyst today for just $19.95 plus shipping and handling, and if you order directly from BaseballHQ.com slash MLBA17 and enter the promo code MINERS at checkout, you get $5 off your order. Plus, you also get a PDF copy of the book. And if that isn't enough, you get online updates for all 30 organizational lists and our top 50 fantasy prospects. Today's winning fantasy baseball players get on top and stay on top by knowing which prospects are the wannabes, the maybes, and the gunnabes. Go to the top. Go to BaseballHQ.com MLBA17 and order your minor league baseball analyst today. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Rob Gordon will be back a little later in the show with the Minor League Minute, reporting on San Diego prospects Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, glad to be here. It's about time we got back into this. It's uh, It's been a long, cold offseason. Let's warm things up. Well, let's start with some congratulations, Ray. Earlier this year, the Fantasy Sports Writers Association named you its Fantasy Baseball Writer of the Year for your work at BaseballHQ.com. So congratulations to you. Well done. Thank you. That was very surprising and very cool. I think the uh, the, the part of it I enjoyed the most was probably the uh, congratulations from you know fellow HQ writers like you guys and our staffers and you know people who have been you know theoretically reading my stuff for a long time who said things like oh you know it's well deserved and overdue or whatever. And I'm like oh okay if people you know actually seem to be saying that then I guess I'll just sort of accept the award. It was great. I it was uh, like I said totally unexpected, but uh, turned out to be way cooler than I even anticipated. Were you in the room, or did they just uh, send you an email? Uh, they were announcing them live on SiriusXM that night, so uh, yeah, they'd sort of told everybody the week before to send in a phone number, and they'll call you, and then I, I got a text like 15 minutes before saying they were going to call me, so that was kind of the you know borderline uh, surprising and auspicious way they announced <laughs> it. That I jumped on uh, SiriusXM, and they uh, you know, honored me live and all of that. That was kind of cool. Okay, well, congratulations again, and on to business. Fantasy Baseball Writer of the Year, you've had a few articles already this year discussing your own expert draft experiences so far. I really liked your story about the labor mix draft. You started by talking about something you called the Zanino plan. I would have thought the only plan involving Mike Zanino would start with, don't draft Mike Zanino, but you did. What's the story? Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not necessarily trying to put Mike Zanino in the hallowed hall of people like Jose Lima, who have actual draft plans named after them. But uh, you know, the, the Zanino pick, uh, you sort of in the end game of that draft, sort of did encapsulate what the entire dra- how the entire draft played out for me. So it, it did sort of uh, you know sort of set the theme, if you will. So uh, you know, basically, it was a play on how I 
spent the early part of the draft building up a batting average foundation and then in, in the second half of the draft kind of exploiting that batting average foundation to turn into a you know to, to uh, spread that out into a base of counting stats and you can imagine how you know Zunio with his you know 220s batting average but a, a 30 home run upside that we pegged down on in a baseball forecaster might be uh, sort of representative of that plan. I, I did the same thing in Tell Wars last year. I, I made sure that my all, all my top dollar picks were high on-base percentage guys. That's the rule we play in that league. And I had the same experience towards the end when you're worrying about, geez, there's a 25 home run guy, but he's got a terrible on-base. But you realize I'm already 25 points higher than I need to be in on-base, so I can take the, you know, the 305 or the 295 on-base because – Somewhere else in my roster, I've got Miguel Cabrera, who's going to knock out a 400. So I'm, I'm, they're going to balance out in the in the long run. And it's a, it's a pretty uh, intriguing plan to think about every time you draft is to get that, get that ratio established. Now, is the same thing true of pitching? I tend to play diff- pitching differently. I think in these mixed leagues, at least, the biggest thing I I always worry about is. You know, obviously you can't ignore the ratios, but when you're playing, you know, when you're building a staff where you're going to get one of the top 20 starters or something like that, and then, you know, if you're distributing your pitching picks sort of normally through your draft, I tend to focus on strikeouts first. I, you know, if I'm going to, what I want to do is I want to build a staff with a big enough strikeout rate that I can stay competitive in the strikeout categories without being the league leader in innings because that's just perilous so if I can you know have a really high strikeout rate I, I always figure I can manage my ratios a little bit better than what they project at just by you know in any of these mixed leagues with weekly transactions just by massaging the lineup and you know playing pitcher matchups a little bit and stuff like that so I always feel like I'm getting a little bit of a edge in season ratios but you can't it's not as easy to target matchups based on strikeout potential. So I want guys who get, who have you know swing strike rates and that sort of thing that lead to big strikeout numbers. You know, where, so I can count on you know eight or nine strikeouts per nine in almost every outing, and then worry about from the worry about managing the ratios by playing matchups and having a couple of options every week and figuring out which one is pitching in a favorable environment for that particular matchup. Has that approach of focusing on high strikeout rate guys? have been affected at all by the growing strikeout rate across the game. And the reason why I'm thinking is that uh, the rising strikeout rate is not going to lift all the boats equally because the guy who's at 11 strikeouts per nine or 10.5 strikeouts per nine is not going to improve 50% to 15 or 16 strikeouts per nine. But the guy who's at 6.5 strikeouts per nine could jump up to nine just because of the way that batters are swinging and missing more often. So has that change in the overall game affected this theory? Yeah, I think the your last point about the uh, the bottom of the boat, I think, is really the key point there. I, I think, for me at least, what it's really meant is that I just have less tolerance for guys with pedestrian strikeout rates. You know, anybody when pedestrian these days is you know anything in the you know six, six and a half, seven strikeouts per nine, which you know not too long ago was still. Uh, uh, helpful, but now it isn't. You, there were there were times when you could you know take strategies like you know if one of those guys you know a, a peak level Jordan Zimmerman is one that comes to mind before he kind of exploded in the last couple of years. But back when he was good in his Washington days, you know he was a you know good number two type starter whose sort of wart was that he didn't have that big strikeout rate. But yeah, there were strategies to mitigate that, whether in how you built the rest of your pitching staff or maybe you went out and spent early on a closer to get 
you know, a Kimbrel or a Jansen or somebody who had a, you know, a reliever who's going to get you 100 strikeouts in 70 innings to, you know, sort of balance off the little bit of a shortcoming you got from Zimmerman. You could do those things, but now with strikeouts so plentiful, there's really just no tolerance for saying, like, I'm going to take a guy here whose strikeout rate is behind the field because there just aren't as many options, to your point, to sort of make up on the field elsewhere because everyone's got strikeout guys. Give us a couple of the names of the pitchers that you targeted early and, and what round you took them in and how that part of the roster framing process proceeded. Yeah, Labor's actually a pretty decent example of where when, I, when it got to sort of the, you know, not dart throwing exercise, but sort of in the soft middle of the draft where I was filling out the middle of my rotation uh, that, you know, strikeouts were sort of, the, sort of the primary filter for me. I had Archer is my ace, and I added Kenta Maeda, who's you know, probably, to be fair, borderline to what I was talking about. He's probably a you know, seven-and-a-half or eight strikeout per nine guy. Uh, so those were my top two starters. And then we got to the middle of the draft, round 14 and 15, and I needed to add a couple more starters. And back-to-back, -back, I took Carlos Rodon and Vincent Velasquez, who aren't necessarily the, the best ratio options or on their particular teams the best options for wins if you're thinking about that at the draft table but one thing they do do is give you a good base of strikeouts and that was really how I was sort of choosing to build the roster here labor in particular it runs pretty deep even for one of these mixed leagues they all sort of look the same on the surface but the way labor's rosters work is you get six reserve spots plus unlimited DL and that really just frees you up to for me at least I always end up using you know four of those six reserve spots for extra starting pitchers and knowing that I'm not going to be hamstrung by having to carry DL guys or anything like that chewing up those roster spots just tells me I'm going to have nine ten maybe even eleven starting pitchers to play those matchup games I was talking about so when a Rodon or a Velasquez has a good matchup they'll be in the lineup when they have an average matchup they'll be in the lineup but if there's something I really don't like if you know Rodon is going through you know the AL East swing of on a road trip or Velasquez goes to you know course field or something like that then you know they'll be on the bench yeah I never thought of the idea that you could pick up your strikeouts halfway through the draft because uh, in my mind typically the strikeouts are going to fall as the pitchers fall in the, in the rounds but because of their other warts that they have uh, certainly you're a little worried about the ratios and, the, and that kind of thing then those fairly high strikeout fairly risky otherwise type guys Carlos Rodon's an excellent example uh, should fall down because everybody's so worried about you know killing their ERA or killing their whip that uh, they're, they're going to give him a wide berth and maybe you snag him a, a round or two uh, below where you might expect a pitcher like that to go based on strikeouts alone you had the number four pick Ray and speaking of pitching you you knew that Clayton Kershaw would not be your selection if he fell to you at number four and uh, I'm wondering given the fact that you're focusing on high strikeouts and Kershaw gives you such an excellent floor in all the pitching categories by some measures he's the most valuable player in fantasy baseball why 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 would you not consider Clayton Kershaw you know I mentioned in the article I think or maybe it was in a tweet following the article, following the draft I can't, you know, for as many years as I've been playing in this game and as many years as Kershaw has been good, I'm not sure I've ever owned him. And it's really just because I just can't bring myself to pay the price. And for sure, in a lot of years, people who pay the price of a top five or top ten pick or, you know, he's been in the first round for a long time now. You know, most years, people who make that pick get rewarded. It's he, Kershaw's you know, delivered time and time again. Uh, I, I think last year is kind of the best example of why... 
I can't bring myself to do it because, you know, he finally, you know, broke down a little bit last year, had the back problems and that sort of thing. And, you know, the trick with him is, you know, you, you know he's going to be fantastic, but there's a big difference between him being fantastic for 240 innings and 190 innings. And that's, you know, given, you know, he's getting a little bit older now and, you know, back problems tend to not just suddenly go away on their own. I you know, I don't doubt that his his ratios will be great and his strikeout rate will be fantastic. But I, it, without knowing whether I can plug in the 230, 240 inning denominator to all of those rates, I just can't bring myself to do it when compared to, you know, the top five or six picks in this draft through Trout and Betts and Arenado and Altuve and Goldschmidt and Bryant. To me, those guys are all guys I'd rather have than Kershaw. And I would consider Kershaw probably if I were picking somewhere in the next tier, but, uh, you know, toward the middle or back half of the first round. But as we saw in this draft, he went second. So, you know, there was no chance of, you know, me sitting, I wasn't even going to get him at four, let alone, you know, someplace where I might consider him like, say, eight, nine, or 10. What did you think when the Kershaw's number two pick was announced? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, the, the whole thing about that is trying to build a dra- build a team around it. And if you look at what Jeff Erickson did with that draft, you know, he with, with that pick, he... You know, he threw a lot of high upside darts after that, trying to build his offense, and I, I think that's kind of what you have to do because you know, as good as Kershaw is, you are sort of behind the eight ball offensively when you don't get that thirty-five dollar, four or five category stud contributor. And you know, I, I think Jeff would tell you that. I, in talking to him after the draft, or talking to him, uh, or reading his post-draft article, he you know basically said that. If you look at his second-round pick, he followed up Kershaw with Giancarlo Stanton, which is by the ADP, a little bit of an early pick, but um, you know certainly if he wanted Stanton, he was going to have to take him at that two-three turn, and he did. And there's a lot of volatility there. If Stanton, you know, stays healthy, plays 140 games, and hits—I mean, he could hit 50 home runs if he if he plays 140 games. That's the kind of pick that you know would mitigate the uh, the loss of not getting a hitter in round one. That you know you can certainly see from team team construction perspective why Jeff did that but that combo of Kershaw and Stanton one two is just for for my taste just an enormous amount of risk now you mentioned uh all of those Arenado and Goldschmidt and those kind of guys and you said that you had rated Nolan Arenado of Colorado ahead of Jose Altuve this season uh, when those players came up for grabs and I thought that was a little surprising given how hard it's going to be to find stolen bases this year and given Altuve's across the board contributions including stolen bases why did you decide that Arenado was going to go ahead of Altuve on your list given his lack of stolen base contributions you're exactly right and even earlier in the offseason I probably would have made and defended an argument that Altuve Altuve's unique skill set between the enormous batting average and the stolen base contribution over you know uh, he's so durable too, and racks up you know 600 plus at bats a year, which you know just gives you such a benefit with that high batting average over so many at bats. Uh, I would have made an argument earlier in the offseason that you know he could have even been number one or num- number two overall. But I think the thing that has swayed me a little bit on that is just the effect that he had. Uh, in the second half last year, after they dropped him down in the order, when they dropped him down in the number three spot and he stopped running, uh, I think he had nine stolen bases in the second half, and that is just enough to give me pause. If he was a thirty, if I was sure he was a thirty-plus stolen base guy to go with the ten or fifteen homers and the you know three twenty-five batting average, that's 
more compelling to me and might have pushed me to take him over Arenado. But the idea that, you know, I just can't fully convince myself that the power surge last year is real, even though the metrics back it up, just because, you know, he kind of fails the eye test for a slugger. And then throw in, uh, you know, the lineup position risk and the fact that, you know, on the downside, I think you're looking at somebody who, even with the big batting average, what I think is I think is baked in with things like his line drive rate and his contact rate and that sort of thing. Certainly, the batting average skills are well established, but I think there's the potential there that you don't get either 20 homers or 20 steals. And even with the batting average at that early pick, that's just not enough counting stat for me. So the thing about Arenado is, no, he doesn't contribute in stolen bases, but he's got just such a high floor with cores and the durability and the established power. I mean, you could just ink in 290, 35, 100, and that might be on the low end. I mean, you'll get the, you know, you won't get anything in stolen bases, but you can be absolutely sure of what you're getting in the other categories. And that kind of predictability is what, in the end, gave me a little little bit of an edge for Arenado over Altuve. All right, then why over Paul Goldschmidt? You could have actually drafted Altuve or Goldschmidt in the fourth slot. You did take Arenado in the next two or Altuve and Goldschmidt. And Goldschmidt looks to me like a, a consensus top three, top four type guy. Average speed and power and pretty reliable in those counting stats. Why not Paul Goldschmidt in that spot? Yeah, he's a he's a perfectly reasonable choice there. And I, I think the only... Th- it, the reason I didn't take him actually had nothing to do with him or his skills or his profile. It was really just a, uh, a sort of a team construction thing. Picking third there, uh, picking fourth, excuse me, I was looking a little, a little bit ahead at that second and third round picks, and one of the things I saw in the ADPs and in the player rankings and in the way that some of these other drafts have played out is that there's sort of a cluster of first basemen who were going to be available to me in that round two, round three range that I really like. And I didn't want to paint myself into a corner where if I took Goldschmidt first and then the guy I liked most in the second or third round was another first baseman, I didn't really want to have two first basemen through two or three rounds. Um, And sure enough, it it turned out that I took Freddie Freeman in the second round. Um, But that easily could have been any of Freddie Freeman or Encarnacion or Vado, who went a little bit before my pick. But those three guys were guys who I sort of realized that I was going to be weighing pretty closely on that two second third round turn and I wanted to retain the flexibility to take them. I wondered about Freeman versus Encarnacion. Uh, you could have had Encarnacion. He went right after you took Freeman as you mentioned and I wonder why not Edwin given the fact that again you're looking at a very consistent power bat and Freddie Freeman while he's, he seems to have a lot of upside it seems also that we've been waiting a while for that upside to hit. Yeah, it does. And those two, I mean, based on the fact that, as you said, they went in consecutive picks, I, I think you can you know, pretty much throw a blanket over them. I, I, I took the slight, um, I gave the very slight edge to Freeman uh, for not particularly concrete reasons. But I, I think it was probably just, you know, a case of chasing that upside, like you said, um, thinking that, you know, there's probably, you know, given their relative ages and development paths, you know, they've been very similar producers the last couple of years. But, um if one of them has another level to unlock, that's more likely Freeman than the 33-year-old or whatever it is, Encarnacion at this point. So uh, that's probably what swayed me in that direction. So you start off in your first three rounds, Arenado Freeman and Daniel Murphy of Washington, and it must have dawned on you at that point you were starting to run into some stolen base trouble. Yes, I had plenty of batting average. In fact, those three guys together, I think, project for an aggregate 
300 batting average over you know something like 1700 at bats or something so that's a that's a huge foundation and but yeah i had a total of i mean maybe maybe 10 steals at that point right those three guys don't run at all so that was going to be a problem uh but that maybe a little bit less of a problem than in other leagues um there is trading and labor, so I sort of have it in the back of my mind. That I don't necessarily need to come, you know, in a competition like this or you know, drafting against you know, sharp minds like this. You can't come come out of the draft having sort of hit all your goals in ten categories. There's just, you know, the competition's too good, and you're going to have to take some risks or short some things along the way. So I sort of had in my mind that in this particular format, because there's trading and because you don't need to win every category, and there's no overall competition like an NFBC or something like that, that I might have been. I, I, I was more content with aiming for the comfortable middle of the pack, fat part of the bell curve in stolen bases rather than trying to ace the category. So, and that just got crystallized after those three picks because that was the best I was going to be able to do anyway at that point. You subsequently, when you were looking at batters, did start looking at guys who offered some stolen bases, not no gigantic stolen base guys guys left at that point, but Alex Bregman, Jose Ramirez, there's 15 to 20 apiece. You go down a little farther, Tim Anderson, a stolen base threat with a terrible batting average, but you offset that with with that uh, good batting average foundation that you'd already laid. And then quite late in the draft, I thought... You managed to land Malik Smith, who's a speculative play, uh, but if he gets any at-bats in Tampa, could steal you a ton. Yeah, exactly. You know, I through you know, round 20 or whatever it was, I'm pretty sure I was bottom third of the league in stolen bases. Uh, Malik's was definitely a play toward trying to sort of land a get-out-of-jail-free card in that regard. And if he comes up with uh, the at-bats, are probably the biggest question there. And, you know, if he gets on base, stays healthy, and those sorts of things, yeah, that can be a you know, 30, 40 stolen base upside, which, you know, solves a lot of my problems if that plays out in, you know, round 20, whatever it was I got him in. Uh, so, yeah, but that's one avenue to sort of solving the problem and well, one fell swoop super late. But, you know, of course, there's risk there. There's, uh, you know, he's not particularly proven. He had the broken thumb last year. He looked like he was starting to put it together before he got sidelined, but, you know, we didn't get a chance to see him sustain the growth. Um because unfortunately he ended up on the DL, so we'll wait and see. There's a chance that uh, that that could ease, could turn out to be the best pick of the draft for me, and that it fixes my stolen base deficiency. Or you know he could be cut by the end of April, and I could be trolling the waiver wire for stolen bases, which is uh, never a fun proposition. We'll see how that goes. Also, in the article that you wrote about your uh, labor mixed draft, you discussed taking advantage of what you called the short side of the snake. Now you picked fourth. That meant when you're coming back in the even rounds and then turning around back into the odd rounds, those picks are only seven apart. It's almost like being at the wheel, but with a little bit stretched out. What's the theory of playing the short side of the snake? So the thing is that, you know, as you say, there's uh, six, seven picks in there that go by. And, in th- you know, off the cuff, it might sound like that's a little too many to predict what's going to happen there but you have to remember that those the six picks are only three teams so you can look at three rosters and i did this a couple points in the draft and say like oh they've all already got two starting pitchers they may not be likely to take a third here but the closer run is going on and none of them have a closer so let me grab the closer first that i want and i'll even though i have an sp i'm targeting i will try to float him through those six picks because I think he's more likely to 
come back than maybe see two or three closers go off the board in between. Uh, you can do the same thing with you know catchers pretty easily if there's a you know you can you know if you're trying to gauge whether you know in round twelve or fourteen or whatever the catcher that you're eyeing is likely to come back to you. You know you can it's a pretty safe bet that a couple of those three teams, if none of them have catchers, are going to be thinking about that at that point. So uh, you know as as the draft was moving back to me sort of right to left on the snake like that, I was always you know when we were a couple of picks away from my turn, I was always taking a quick glance at those three teams from to to my left on that snake trying to figure out you know where their priorities might be and i you know a couple of times you guess and you guess wrong their 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 heads are just in different places at that point or you don't know how they value or prioritize a particular position but you know just it's hard in a draft obviously to you sort of keep track of what all 15 teams are doing but if you're toward one end of the snake you know you can keep track of the teams on that short side in a little more detail and maybe figure out how to order your pairs of picks because when you're toward the end of the snake like that you do tend to think of the picks and pairs even if you're not actually on the wheel where you get the two in a row if you're just a couple of spaces off of it you know you're sort of thinking on the long term about what two things you want on the way back and you know basically it's just a a way to try to figure out what order you want to play those two things in i did notice that as you came back to uh the back end of the snake in round eight you had a Obviously, uh, David Robertson and Kenta Maeda were on your mind, and uh, the, the closer run had kind of got rolling, so you took Robertson first, looking at the fact that all three of the teams ahead of you had two pretty good quality starters and were un- le- probably, you thought, less likely to be worried about getting a starter, but they might have wanted to grab David Robertson, so you got him and you got Maeda going back down the, uh, the odd round side of the draft, so it seems to have worked out perfectly for you that way. Yeah, I'm not sure I can take 100% credit for that because, you know, that was one where I, I pointed out that example. But, you know, after I took Robertson, the closer, roll, the closer run stopped, even though none of those three guys to my left had a closer, they didn't take another one. Now, maybe one of them would have taken Robertson if they had fallen through. But, uh, you know, when you're in a run like that, once you get your guy, you kind of want to see the run keep going a little bit and let other people feed into it and push other other stuff down the draft. But in in the meantime... Uh, there was one more pitcher that got taken in those six picks, even though everybody had two starters already. So luckily for me, it was Dallas Keiko and not Maeda. So I managed to, I did get the guy I wanted, Maeda, uh, in round nine there after it came back after the six picks. But, you know, I, I think I can only give myself partial credit for that one. It worked out, but, you know, maybe not quite the way I drew it up. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and the Fantasy Sports Writer Association, Fantasy Baseball Writer of the year. Uh, Ray, the BaseballHQ.com website is already up and running at a pretty frantic pace. How many articles are we publishing in any week during this draft prep season? So yeah, this week, uh, since last weekend has been our, uh, we've been in seven day mode, which we, we, we jump into, uh, you know, right at this time of year as, uh, pitchers and catchers report, et cetera. So there's new content on the site every single day. Uh, most days during the week, there's three, four new articles that'll actually rise to probably a pretty consistent four to five, uh, once now that we're getting spring training games underway and we get a little more news flowing out of there uh you know we've been running playing time today our sort of news-based uh column with you know injuries or job battles or you know playing time allocations those sorts of tracking those sorts of things uh, we've been running playing time today every you know third or fourth day or something like that and uh, that will quickly converge to 
daily as there's uh, enough news coming out of these games and you know sore arms and those sorts of things to report. So uh, we'll be at you know thirty pushing forty articles a week. Uh, you know next week or the week after, and we pretty much stay in that mode right through uh, you know late September, the end of the season. So uh, we are uh, hitting our stride, getting uh, you know ramping up to full speed here. You mentioned the playing time today columns. There's also facts and flukes. These are real old standbys that have been around BaseballHQ.com for a very long time and for very good reason. They're very helpful. Facts and flukes validates player performance, whether it seems to be outlying high or outlying low. We have buyer's guides columns, batting, starting pitching, and bullpens. What else goes on at BaseballHQ.com that uh, when people go there and look at the site and realize what the content covers? I, I, you know, I, at this point, I point in the season, I think my favorite, and I'm not alone in this, I think one of the most popular features on the site is the uh, weekly market pulse column, where Matt Cedarholm does a super job of uh, taking the uh, results of other drafts, uh, average draft position data, that sort of thing. Uh, he basically just cross indexes them with our player projections and starts to identify pockets of value where, you know, early in he goes position by position every week and he'll say like you know when the early rounds of the draft you know first basemen are overvalued here but you can get second baseman later or you know here's the here's a point in the draft where the shortstop market gets a little soft and really you know over the course of you know one article per week for you know eight or nine weeks covering all the positions really just sort of lays out a roadmap of you know where the sweet spots are if you're working with our projections versus what you know the rest of the market might be doing where you know where you can figure out you know what you want to bump up where and you know sort of you know by the time you've read all eight nine columns you've sort of got a roadmap for team construction either in the auction or the straight draft format which you know everybody loves those uh columns and with good reason they're sort of the uh but by the time they're done they sort of add up to being your uh you know draft day playbook I uh, noticed we've been running fantasy baseball research studies ever since the last season ended pretty much. And this week I thought there was a really interesting study looking at ADPs and draft slot positions and calculating where you really want to be if you have your choice, which in a lot of leagues nowadays you do. You can put in your Kentucky Derby entry or you can just volunteer to take a pick. Uh, And it turns out picking first overall is actually pretty good, but there were some differences down the line. Now, what other kind of fantasy baseball research are you looking forward to and what have you seen so far you've done a lot of work for us over the years in the uh, research department patrick that's a uh, you know sort of one of the critical differentiators of our site and you know having done all the work you know i think it was one or two years there where you were kind of the sole uh, driver of that bus where you were just grinding out those pieces you know week after week uh, you, so you could be the first one to testify that those are a lot of work and you know yes, by the time are. something like that research this week's uh, piece from brandon gavitt that you're talking about hits the site uh, you know there's been some other good ones lately. We did one on uh, Eric Formanti. Did one on deserved home runs. Uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. We've we've really ramped up the research department this year to uh, you know, sort of its uh, highest output level in an, in a number of years. Uh, sort of trying to sort of reestablish that that differentiating trait that I was talking about. But but like I said, you know that those are a lot of works. So that was really just a question of you know augmenting our staff and giving them the tools and finding the right people who can take these you know super deep dives like you know these. <laughs> 
these articles that Brandon writes about the uh, ADP, like you're talking about, are fantastic. I was just talking to him over email yesterday, and he was just saying that, you know, in all of these articles, you, you know, he writes, he runs, uh, you know, simulations where, you know, 10,000 different drafts, you know, literally get, you know, simulated and played out on his computer. And then, you know, he tabulates the results and, you know, averages everything out and comes up with, you know, the answers like, you know, the first tr- first pick does pretty well, et cetera. Um, but he was telling me that, like, running those 10,000 simulations actually takes, like, 24 hours every time he runs it. So, yeah, <laughs> constructing a column like this is just, you know, literally comes out to be, you know, weeks of work to turn into that, uh, you know, 1,500 word piece or whatever it is. But, uh, but they're super insightful and readers are just gobbling them up. I know I gobble them up. I end up reading, you know, reading them while they're still sort of in draft fit stage before they get edited on the site and published out for everybody else. And I'm, so I'm reading them a day or two before everybody else. And I'm just, you know, just can't get enough of them. And as soon as they, I, I as soon as I see them hit the site in that, uh, sort of in the editor's queue, I'm jumping right over there because I can't wait to see what they have next. And we should point out that he wasn't sitting there for the full 24 hours staring at his screen. You let the computer do the work and you go off and, uh, you know, take the garbage out and that kind of stuff. Uh, we also have our minor leagues coverage as well. And uh, another thing that I've always liked about BaseballHQ.com, I used to write these, is the gaming and strategy columns that cover all the various formats. I've, I think one of my very first jobs at BaseballHQ.com back when, you know, Ty Cobb was a, a top-round <laughs> draft pick was uh, they co- they called it the Roto st- Strategy Column, and I was coming up with ideas about how to, you know, figure out how you wanted to approach valuations and those kind of things. It was all dollar values for me. I, d- I don't play straight draft that much. But I really like the gaming and strategy columns, and the- they're back in full force again as well. Yeah, Joseph Pitkleski had a uh, nice piece this week that uh, we're actually promoting as a uh, as a free offering, actually, so everybody can go to the website and read it. But it's uh, you know a, a nice deep dive into uh, you know how to use middle relievers, you know, sort of those that under. Uh, that almost ignored undervalued segment of the uh you know the player pool where people sort of only look at middle relievers traditionally and when they're looking for saves and trying to figure out who the next closer and waiting is but you know joe sits there and you know talks about how to mine the uh the good ones for opportunity and profit and ratio protection and all of those good things that you want for your pitching staff even beyond the uh you know the potential bonus payoff of getting saves out of it so it's a really uh you know r- r- really a nice treatment of that concept that i know you and uh you and todd in your talks here on the podcast have talked about a number of times over the year but joe uh you know joe t- did a nice uh concise write-up of the uh all, all the benefits and how to do it and uh you know a a way to you know mine some value from a uh section of the player pool that you know a lot of times nobody else is paying attention to especially in mixed leagues uh ray i know there's Every year, there's some stuff that changes at the site. It's not always uh, reader facing. Like it's not always there's not always new features that have been invented for the use of readers. But a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. I remember a year or two ago, we changed the uh, pure quality start rules to change, uh, be more reflective of what constitutes a good start for a starting pitcher. Anything new like that? in front of the reader or behind the scenes for 2017? Yeah, a couple of things we've got in the hopper, and a lot of it is flowing out of that, you know, that kind of flood of research we have going on that we were just talking about. Uh, One of the things that you'll see probably pretty close to opening day is we're doing a uh, pretty significant refresh flowing out of that pure quality starts concept. Uh, You know, we we had, we've for a long time had uh, pitcher matchup scores that we derive from those pure quality starts that, uh, you know, for somewhat for DFS purposes and somewhat for just daily or weekly uh, regular lineup setting purposes. We've had a scoring system every 
day we publish on the site where we can, you can see the uh, ratings for all starting pitchers for the day. And we're, uh, you know, t- to be honest about it, one of the things that happened with that pure quality starts uh, change you talked about last year is it kind of, it didn't break those matchup scores, but that change to pure quality starts sort of... Uh, narrowed the differentiation or the uh you know it wasn't as easy to spot what the good or bad starts were on a given day with the new quality starts metric that we put in last year so we're rebuilding the pitcher matchup scores sort of from the ground up and we uh i think we're on track to roll that out on opening day so that'll be something new we'll have for this year uh otherwise you're right a lot of the work that goes on too is always not necessarily uh, you know, really directly visible in the content on the site. But one of the things we did uh, late last year that people are benefiting from for in force now is we actually swapped out the uh, the shopping cart on the site, which was uh, the old shopping cart on the site was you know circa 1997 or something like that, and just you know very old school web, very clunky, very temperamental, and you know frustrated a lot of people on the customer side. Frustrated me because you know you never want to be making it difficult for people to give you their money. So we actually fixed that problem we've got a state-of-the-art shopping cart now it's working great uh you know customer service uh, complaints are way down as a result of that so that's uh that's an example of something that you know doesn't look as uh as cool or sexy as a new metric that solves uh you know the, the riddle of pitcher wins or something like that but is still uh still important and still Part part of the good customer experience that we're uh, trying to foster here so you know working on a, a number of different fronts as always yeah i was Using the shopping cart, I always get the one with the wheel that wobbles back and forth, and you can't get it to go straight. So I'm glad that that's fixed. <laughs> got my uh, got my two mangoes in there, and I just don't want to shake them to death. Uh, I know that you have the, the honor of writing a fair amount of content for BaseballHQ.com as well. What are your plans as a writer for this season? This is a great time of year because I get to do sort of all my favorites. You know, the uh, I think I have a little more latitude in topics and coverage in season uh which you know creatively can be kind of fun too but uh you know the preseason this sort of february and march period is really sort of uh play back the greatest hits every year where uh you know we're doing this i've got a speculator column that's uh i'll probably finish today and get up on the site this weekend uh, finishing up a series we've done the last couple of weeks with uh going through the forecaster and identifying all of the players who got the speculative up or down projections in their player commentaries uh we, we did two pieces in the last couple weeks that focus on all the upside guys and this week i'm writing up the downside guys uh the general manager's office you know brent and i you know sort of tag team that column uh this this labor draft review that you were you and i were just talking about is uh you know appeared in that space and in a couple of weeks we have the tout wars mixed draft so i'll go through that draft in a couple of weeks and then you know probably do a similar treatment of it in the general manager's office space and uh, one of my other favorite columns for march that's on my radar screen is the straight draft guide where we sort of take all the tools on the site and all the experiences and the drafts we've had and you know boil it down into here's sort of your one-stop shop for all of the strategy and all of the sleeper lists and all of the uh all of the tools you need to take into your draft here's your if you show up on the site on thursday and your draft is on saturday and you have one day to cram go to this page read these you know i link out to a ton of other articles there'll be 20 links there to other other articles in the preseason here's a draft list you can just print out and go with here's the adp here's you know here's your everything has got to go in your briefcase to the draft, right? So that's always uh, fun to cobble together, and I'll be getting started on that in the next week or so. That'll be up on the site in uh, probably the first full week of March, not next week, but the week after. 
All right, maybe I'm being a bit premature with this, but give us a sleeper hitter and a sleeper pitcher for this year that you like based on everything you've seen so far and what you've read at the site and your own experiences. For a hitter, kind of an end gamer, the one guy who I've talked about quite a bit is Colton Wong in St. Louis. Uh, you know, obviously was somebody I think we sort of had tagged as a breakout or a guy who could take a, a step up last year and instead he sort of, you know, stepped in a ditch. Uh, you know, sort of got off to a slow start, lost his job to Oledmius Diaz, who just hit everything that was thrown at him. And as a result, he, you know, ended up briefly in the minors. He was on the bench. Then they were fooling around with him in center field. You know, it was sort of just a lost year. He never really got going. But I still like a lot about Colton Wong. And I, I like the power and speed combo. I, I think he's going to work his way back into an everyday role this year. And there were also some interesting articles floating around uh, in January about the Cardinals saying they wanted to run more. Uh, they, they were one of the teams, they were sort of the National League equivalent of the Orioles last year. They had something like a total of 30-something teams stolen bases or something. And it was kind of understandable because I think they... They, they were up near the top, if not at the top of the National League in home runs. So they were really just an Earl Weaver kind of offense. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of noise that I read in January of uh, Bozilliak and Matheny saying they kind of want to get back to uh, running a little bit more. And, you know, they've added Dexter Fowler as sort of a you know, more, you know, he's obviously got a lot of on-base percentage, but, you know, he's a faster guy who you're back at the leadoff spot in the top of the lineup instead of Matt Carpenter. So... Long way around of saying that I think the Cardinals might go back to playing a little bit more of a game that suits Wong's skills. So if he can, you know, not get off to a terrible start this year like he did last year, then I, I think there's a, a path to value for him. Uh, on the pitcher side, I everybody was kind of on Alex Reyes. I drafted him in a couple weeks too. I don't want to say I wasn't among them, but everybody was on Alex Reyes, obviously until he went down last week, but I'm not so sure I didn't, in terms of thinking of that same class of young starting pitcher, uh, you know, super young starting pitcher, I, I think I liked Julio Urias all along better than Reyes for this year, and I would, you know, I'm kind of hoping that everyone who was on Reyes before he got hurt doesn't follow me over to Urias because I think I was there all along. Urias is a guy who is gonna, obviously going to have some innings limits, and we might not see him for more than 140, 150 innings this year. But from what I saw of him last year, he just looked fantastic. And you know, if they don't yank him around quite as much, and just you know, obviously they're going to manage his workload. But if they leave him alone and just let him get 20, 24 starts, something like that, I think he could be just dynamite in that. Uh, in that sample size so he's somebody who's uh, certainly on my workload if people are sh- he's he's on my radar if people are shying away from him because they think they're only going to get you know a half or two-thirds of a season that's fine I'll take a half or two-thirds of a season because I think it could be really really good well talking of sleepers and pitchers I'm curious what you think about Jose Barrios uh the longtime BaseballHQ.com writer Mike Shears looked at the uh, American League Central Division in playing time tomorrow, looking at all the rosters of the of that division and saying, uh, looking at some of their players and rec- making some recommendations. W- would you put any money on Jose Barrios making a comeback this year after some pretty dreadful struggles? Yeah, I th- there's a spot, at w- you know, a price point at which I'd gamble on that. I, you know. Mike made the point that I think it's a good one. That, you know, they're certainly not going to rush him. And you know, after the year he had last year, I think you know, best case scenario, even if he has a good spring, is that he's going to go to AAA and you know, try to reestablish himself, rebuild some confidence, you know, straighten out his approach. Uh, one of the things that I think might push me in that direction is that they did have regime change in Minnesota, and this doesn't just go for Mar- for Barrios; it goes for 
Kyle Gibson and Trevor May and you know a lot of those other guys. I know you 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 wrote a couple of things last year about some of these Twins pitchers. You know that team was so different than everybody else in the way they were teaching the young pitchers to pitch to contact and you know their strikeout rates were way off the reservation compared to the rest of the league. But you know some of these guys have some real stuff and with the regime change and if the mindset changes, you know I'm not saying that these guys are just going to all get fixed overnight but with coaching and a new approach and new eyes looking at these guys you know if Barrios goes to triple a and starts to look like he's figured it out or they've changed his pitch sequencing or something i'm let's put it this way i'm willing to buy in pretty quickly once he shows anything at all in the way of progress because we all know the talent was there he was super highly rated and he would not be the first pitcher to you know stumble in his first trip to the majors and you know take a deep breath over the course of an offseason, come back with a good spring training and a different mindset, a little bit of help from his support staff, and you know, and just catch fire very quickly from there. I will point out that our starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, Stephen Nickrand, who's a fantastic analyst of starting pitching, says that uh, Jose Barrios is on his radar as a guy who, and I'm quoting, has the foundation to stake, take a step forward in 2017. I think that's right, and, and I think sometimes we get... Uh, a little bit overly disappointed when young players, especially young pitchers, come to the majors and don't do well. And we should stop and step back and say, you know what? Pitching in the major leagues is really hard. And if you're 21 years old and trying to sneak a fastball past Mike Trout or Edwin Encarnacion, it's not that easy. And it takes a bit of getting used to, you know, it's like being a pro quarterback. I mean, how many times have we seen a very top-rated uh, college quarterback get drafted into the NFL. They start him in his first year, and he looks brutal. And everybody kind of puts to the side the fact that this is hard. And maybe Berrios, being a young guy, maybe a cultural problem, a language issue that he has to deal with, all of these other things besides just being on the mound, getting jerked around by the Twins management up and down, up and down like uh, Byron Buxton has suffered. There's a lot of factors at play here when you're looking at a prospect that maybe – we just have to remember somebody at some time thought this guy was really good and he, and whoever thought that wasn't alone. And if we give this guy half a chance, who knows, maybe you could spend two bucks on Jose Barrios and get a $30 pitcher. Yeah, absolutely. And the biggest thing to remember about him is, you know, at this age and with this level of experience, what you see in that first time around is so far from a finished product. I mean, you can look at the numbers and you can look at his walk rate, his strikeout rate, his ground ball rate. You can look at the profile and from how he got tattooed and if you go in there looking for you know glimmers of hope you may you may not see much you know steven points out that there's a foundation there so in barrios this you know he may not be the best example of this but sometimes guys who you know you look at their first you know 50 or 100 innings in the majors and you just you look at the stats and the skills behind it you just want to avert your eyes but you just need to remember that you know that's not a finished product and sometimes the guys come back and they're a completely different guy the second time around and you, you sort of have to give them a little bit of latitude based on that pedigree and as you say the idea that you know in the in their, in their fairly recent past some pretty smart people thought he could be really really good i mean i i'm reminded of um you know the young A's guys from Moneyball. I think it was Mulder who was, uh, you know, when he first came up. You know, he got knocked around in a in his first cup of coffee, and then he came back the next year and was just 
no longer the same guy and you know that's the kind of you know turn on a dime that you at least have to be open to or at least if you just assume that what you saw the first time is what the guy is going to be all along you're going to miss out so you know the, the biggest thing is to just keep the open mind and when you start to see you know even the first hints that something's different about it this year about it this year to if you see those signs to be open to taking them seriously well, he was terrific in AAA, and uh, I'm re- I'm reminded every time I s- start thinking about these kind of stories of a feature that we sh- we put in the Encyclopedia of Fanalytics every year in the Baseball Forecaster, and it's called the Alex Rodriguez Ten Steps to Stardom or something like that. And steps one through four four are fantastically heralded prospect. Step two stinks at the major league level, and then gradually works his way up until by f- step five or six he's really good, and by step nine he's a superstar and. And I think that we should always keep that in the back of your mind. Now, Ray, Barrios will be pitching for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic. And, of course, a lot of other major leaguers, especially young guys, will be participating. Do you put any stock in that as something you want to keep your eye on to see how well a pitcher or a player is performing? For the most part, no. I mean, I guess I'm open to something really catching my eye, but I don't think I go in with a lot of... uh preconceived notions uh what you know it's funny one thing that came up um in preparing for the uh, first pitch forums program is we were looking for our annual list of black swans are sort of out on a limb projections or you have no idea you know there's no real reason to expect this to happen but it could kind of things and one of our staffers sent in a note about ike davis who's playing for in the wbc and said something to the effect of you know, Ike Davis has a hot WBC, earns a job, you know, sticks in the majors and hits 30 homers. And, I'm, you know, on the, that's the point of the black swan. On the, on, the, on the face of it, that's utterly ridiculous. And I, I, my first instinct was to, to dismiss it as, as such. But, hey, I, now Ike Davis is probably someone I'll at least keep an eye on in the WBC because, you know, he's the kind of guy who, you know, in the distant past, he has some skills and... The WBC for him might be an opportunity that he wouldn't get in a regular spring training. He'd spend too much of his time, you know, pinch hitting in the eighth inning of, you know, split squad games or out on a backfield or something like that. But, you know, if that gets him an opportunity and he gets to play himself into a, you know, into a bench role to start the season because of that, hey, that would be interesting. So, you know, in the sense that it gives us more data points to look at and you know the the thing about the wbc as opposed to regular spring training games is people are playing like they care about the outcome so that's a different dynamic than we get in most springs so it's it's, it's a variable to keep tabs on i don't exactly know how to interpret it but it's uh, it, it's worth a little bit of extra attention this march while we're clamoring for opening data come maybe after they get a few more of them uh, accomplished we can start looking at the results and saying did uh, good performance or bad performance presage similar uh, happenings in the regular season uh, ray i know you have to run you're off to chicago for the debut of first pitch forum in 2017 we have a little promo running about it in the show, so we don't need you to get into details, but who will be speaking along with you at uh, Chicago on Saturday, St. Louis on Sunday? It's a uh, it's a great group. I'm looking forward to uh, getting to see a bunch of our HQ writers who I don't get to see enough of, and we'll, uh, we've got a nice little program put together. I'm 
spent a bunch of the early part of this week uh, getting that all ironed out, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, in Chicago this weekend, of course, uh, we'll have Ron Chandler, our old friend and the founder of Baseball HQ. He is hosting at all seven sites this year, which is uh, important to point out that uh, Ron is making the full tour this year. So anybody who shows up anywhere is going to see Ron. Uh, in Chicago, we'll have uh, myself and Brent Hershey, my co-general manager. Uh, in addition to us, uh, Alex Becky, Doug Dennis, Stephen Nickrand, who's who does that awesome work with the starting pitchers that you mentioned earlier, uh, and Joe Hoffer from HQ will all be in Chicago. And then on Sunday in St. Louis, it's Ron Brent and I again. Uh, Brant Chesser, Jeff Tomich, and Brian Rudd will all be uh, in St. Louis, too. Uh, we're at the Oak Brook Marriott in Chicago and the uh, Airport Marriott in St. Louis. So uh, a couple of good venues. Uh, we hit both of these stops last year and had good crowds. So if you're listening to this and looking for something to do this weekend, come on out. It's great time it's about three hours of uh you know a deep dive into the uh upcoming baseball season with uh everything you need to get ready for your draft and uh, sort of if you're not in the baseball mindset we'll get you there and if you are already i guarantee you, you'll still learn something all right, Ray, thanks very much for giving us that information and all the information on this uh, podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time, and of course, it was very interesting as always. Do appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, and he writes for the site well enough to be the reigning 2016 Fantasy Sports Writer Association Fantasy Baseball Writer of the Year. When we come back, the Minor League Minute and, oh, Master Notes. I'm back because the one thing you need is more of me on this show. Stay tuned. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Ernie Shore was the perfect one. When Babe Ruth, he got the thumb. For a price, they sent him down to old New York. Things went bad till Cronin came. 46, they won again. The Sox had Tex and Pesky team with Bobby Dork. I'm talking baseball. West Farrell and Doc Kramer. Boston baseball. Scientists, the Hall of Famers. Dominic Parnell and Jimmy Fox The Thumper just waiting in the box Talking baseball Baseball and the Sox There were triple crowns and MVPs He hit the ball with grace and ease Teddy was as splendid as they come Then Yastrzemski got the call In 67 he did it all and the pennant was flying high before his work was done. I'm talking baseball. Jackie Jensen, Reggie Pearsall, Boston baseball. Ronald's Rico and Don Schwal, Tony C, the monster Ike the Lock. Lon Borg and the strange glove of the dock. We're talking baseball. Baseball and the Sox. Talking baseball in New England Aganis and Smokey Joe Stevens three hits in one inning Carlton Fisk and Freddie Lynn Please come to Boston in the spring It's a beautiful thing Baseball HQ Radio Whether we realize it or not, our draft day behavior is highly influenced by everyone around us. We rely on the wisdom of the crowd for decision-making. The problem with that is that the crowd is often dead wrong. The 2017 First Pitch Forum program moves you beyond the wisdom of the crowd by identifying the places to stray from consensus opinion. We have rebuilt this year's program from the ground up with the help of some of the sharpest minds in the fantasy baseball industry. 
All sessions are hosted by Baseball HQ founder Ron Chandler and feature other Baseball HQ writers and industry experts. We will be in Chicago on February 25th and St. Louis on February 26th. Washington, D.C., Virginia on March 3rd. New York, New Jersey on March 4th. Boston on March 5th. Los Angeles on March 11th. And San Francisco on March 12th. Come out and join us for three hours of invaluable draft prep time. First Pitch Forums. We'll see you there. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We have our regular commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game during spring training and all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week at the site, there's a look at the third base situation in San Francisco covered in playing time tomorrow. In Facts and Flukes, we have analysis of Bryce Harper, Joe Panic, Aaron Nola, and other players. In research, Brandon Gavitt's draft simulation study on ADPs. Ray and I talked about that a moment ago. And BaseballHQ.com also has minor league scouting, projections, and other tools you can use to help you dominate your competition this draft season. It's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. BaseballHQ.com Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have my Master Notes segment, but first, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on San Diego prospects Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The San Diego Padres finished tied for the worst record in the National League last year, and heading into spring training, 2017 doesn't look much better. One potential bright spot for Padres fans could be in the outfield, where rookies Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro offer a nice mix of speed and power. The 22-year-old Margot had his best season as a pro last year, hitting 304 with a 351 on on-base percentage and a 424 slugging percentage. He had 21 doubles, 12 triples, 6 home runs, and 30 stolen bases in the minors. Margot can be overly aggressive at the plate, but his plus hand-eye coordination resulted in an 88% contact rate last year, and he should be able to hit for decent average. He does have plus speed, but needs to be more efficient on the bases, and was thrown out 11 times last year. Because of his speed and track record of hitting for average, Margot should have double-digit value in NL-only formats. While Margot has the speed, Hunter Renfro has the lumber that most fantasy owners will be looking for on draft day. A strong spring should land the 25-year-old Renfro the starting right field job, and last year he blasted 30 home runs at AAA and then hit another 4 home runs and 35 late-season at-bats with the Padres. Renfro doesn't strike out a ton, but he also doesn't walk much, 3.9% last year, so his AAA slash line of 306 with a 336 on base percentage and a 557 slugging percentage is not likely to be sustainable over the long term. Still, with regular playing time, Hunter Renfro has the raw power to blast 20-plus home runs, making him a nice late-round value in most leagues. The Padres still have a long way to go and need plenty of help on the mound, but Margot and Renfro will at least make the club fun to watch in 2017. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During the spring training and all season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion of baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about identifying good pitchers using metrics consistently based on total batters faced. 
Last week in Master Notes, I raised the subject of standardizing pitcher metrics to use total batters faced as the denominator. Otherwise, the metrics use a bunch of different denominators, which gets in the way of combining them, and combining them is really useful sometimes. So, I downloaded all the Baseball Info Solutions pitching stats for the last 10 years or so and started the grueling task of converting as many stats as I could to total batters faced. In the interest of brevity and consistency, I'll just call them percentages. To take semantic advantage of the existing and very useful strikeout percentage stat we already know and use. So, every stat I talk about during this commentary will be stated as percentage, occurrence of a particular outcome, versus the pitcher's total batters faced. Besides strikeout percentage, I set up the spreadsheet to calculate percentages for soft, medium, and hard-hit grounders, flies, and line drives. Then I checked the hit rate chart I used in a previous master notes. And I identified outcomes as either good or bad from the pitcher's perspective. I included as good outcomes strikeout percentage and infield fly percentage. Both of them have hit rates of zero and advance rates of zero. Base runners don't move forward on strikeouts or infield flies. I also included soft grounders, which have just a 14% hit rate and also tend to prevent base runners from advancing. And soft and medium fly balls have hit rates only around 7 or 8%. And we know from watching the game, I they also, also tend several to prevent base as runners from advancing because they put runners on directly and or they advance runners, some of them even scoring. Also, bad is the opposite of good, which helps me keep it all straight in my mind. The bad pitcher metrics start with walks and hit by pitch. They put runners aboard directly. Line drives have much higher hit rates than the other trajectories, which means more runners aboard via hits and more runners advancing. Hard hit fly balls become hits about half the time, and they're well overrepresented in extra base hits, so batters can get into scoring position right away and often push runners around, especially runners at third, who can become runs even on fly ball outs. And home runs, well, they're obviously bad. Yes, I know there are some overlaps. Infield flies are captured in fly balls, and home runs are part of the hard-hit fly ball outcome. But in both cases, these are special kinds of outcomes, and I'll live with the overlap for now. Without getting too enmeshed in details, it turned out that most established regular pitchers are pretty consistent year-to-year -year across the board of these outcomes, but it also turned out that many pitchers had some good categories and a few not-so-good or even bad categories. So I took a next step, and I added all the goods into a good percentage category and all the bads into a bad percentage. The top 10 pitchers of the good percent group had combined good percentages of over 50% of total batters faced, and the list reads like the top of a pretty decent cheat sheet. Max Scherzer is number one, then Yu Darvish is up there, Clayton Kershaw, Madison Bumgarner, Steven Strasburg. But what's intriguing is the names on the list who aren't obvious top-rounders, like Drew Smiley, Marco Estrada, Rich Hill, Eduardo Rodriguez, Drew Pomerantz, and Matt Boyd. Boyd makes an interesting case in particular. His 20% strikeout rate in 2016 was just league average, but his 8% soft fly ball percentage and his 10% medium fly ball percentage meant he generated more cans of corn than the Jolly Green Giant. His more defined batter face profile also makes his 2016 home run per fly ball rate look even flukier than the 14% home run fly ball he rang up. Because remember, home run per fly counts home runs as a percentage of all fly balls, including the many soft and medium hit fly balls that could never be home runs. The true luck gauge should be the percentage of hard fly balls that go yard. 
Game-wide in 2016, that number was 33%. Boyd's was 41 Knock off those eight extra percentage points off Boyd's home run per hard hit fly ball percentage, he'd have had three or four fewer home runs, with matching improvements in strand rate and ERA. After looking at these results for a while, I had a couple of realizations. First, I thought, hey, I don't have to take out the garbage as long as I'm working. And second, hey, if there are secretly good pitchers by total batter's face percentage, are there also secretly bad ones by the bad percentages? Well, we report, you decide. The worst 10% of bad percentage starters last year were Jared Weaver, Aaron Blair, Jesse Hahn, Shelby Miller, James Shields, Phil Hughes, and Jose Barrios. Keep those names in mind when you're calculating the likelihood of bounce backs. The best, that is the lowest, 10% among the bad percentages again included most of the big names. Kershaw was first on the list this time. But also, chin scratchers like Williams Perez, Jamison Tyon, James Paxton, and Aaron Nola. Finally, I thought, if there are some pitchers who are good at being bad, and others who are good at not being bad, what about the ones who are good in both ways? So, I subtracted every pitcher's bad percentages from his good percentages. And what do you know? Here's the top of the list. Kershaw, Scherzer, Darvish, Strasburg, Verlander, Syndergaard, Bumgarner. All at the top of the net good percentage list with scores of up to plus 31%. Clayton Kershaw had 31 percentage points more good percentage outcomes than bad. Corey Kluber and Kyle Hendricks also made the top 10%. But look at who else is among the elite with net good percent scores at least double the game-wide level of plus 9 Rich Hill again, Drew Smiley again, Drew Pomerant, Stephen Wright, Rick Porcello, about whom everybody's trying to figure a reason not to draft, Aaron Nola again, and Marco Estrada again. The next level of refinement here could be to weight the categories somehow, to tease out the double counting, and to more accurately reflect actual contributions to success or failure. Maybe strikeouts should be fully counted in the numerator, with those cans of corn getting 0.92, soft ground balls getting 0.85, and so on down, as the results get less and less helpful. That's going to have to wait till next time. Once again, I've reached my time limit, and I still haven't taken that garbage out. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, co-general manager from BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy, a terrific baseball writer and a big friend of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. On the show and behind the scenes, Ray's been a big, big help for us. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, 
where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature will be our first Talk with Todd for 2017. That's our guest expert, Todd Zola, from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.